Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hey, it's Anna. Our episode this week deals with suicide, and we also discuss an attempt. If you or someone you love is at risk of harming themselves, or if you just need some help with mental health, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The number is 1-800-273-8255. Or as you'll hear about in this episode, as of July 16th, you can just dial 988. I imagine... Driving a semi, that's a lot of time with your own thoughts. Yeah, and sometimes it's rewarding, sometimes it's not. It's just thought after thought after thought. It's not healthy. Um, and almost every song on the radio, I can twist where it's the, the negative song. It's just not good. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Jason Whitmire is 37, a husband and father of two little boys who lives in Casper, Wyoming. Until recently, he made money driving a truck. Most of their day trips, but they're long days. You know, families asleep when I leave, and then the kids are asleep when I get home. Jason is a suicide attempt survivor and is active in a local suicide prevention group. Wyoming had the highest rate of suicide per capita in the U.S. in 2020. It's been one of the top states every year since 1990 for most of Jason's life. Jason's mental health struggles started in his mid-20s. He'd make a small mistake or feel guilty about something and then couldn't shake it, and he would end up in a very dark place. They put me on an antidepressant and didn't work. Then, a few months later, he was heading back from work. This was in 2013. I was you know, very suicidal, had a plan. I was 
driving. I was about 45 minutes away from Casper. I was coming back. And then all of a sudden, something, something clicked. Uh, I started calling people, say, hey, I'm not safe. It was almost as if, as soon as the front tires hit the interstate from the on-ramp, everything changed. Who did you call? It's probably my wife is who I called first. And then, then I think I next called my boss because I was in a company truck at the time, pickup, and called him. And then after that, the word had gotten around fast enough that people were calling me. And you know, as soon as somebody called that I knew closely and loved dearly, I would just start crying. And so I had to tell people to stop calling me so I could see the road. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, what? What was what felt important that you heard from from somebody on the other side of the phone? What do you remember? Uh, well, there was a lot of "Are you okay?"s and "I love you." <laughs> That's pretty much what I heard during the phone conversation. Um, and drive safe because I was forty five minutes away. But that's what it was. Is a lot of. Emphasis on me, making sure that I was okay. There was none of like anybody trying to ask questions about how you could do this, or why would you do this? Or it was all everything was positive reinforcement towards me. Jason knew who to reach out to, but not everyone does. And for people who need support, there's a new number to call: nine eight eight. This simple three-digit number goes into effect nationwide on July 16th. And along with this new number, local call centers are gearing up for more calls. So when you're in crisis, you reach someone who knows the community you're a part of. It just became very clear that if we wanted to bring down our, the rate of suicide in Wyoming, we had to start addressing it with Wyoming people. This is Karen Sylvester. She's worked in suicide prevention for a long time, 25 years. She's also raised eight children in Wyoming, and she's now the director of training and fundraising for the Wyoming Lifeline, one of two new suicide hotlines that got up and running in 2020 in the state. You know, you're supposed to be tough and strong and brave and all the things that people don't associate with seeking mental health services. We're very rural. Everybody knows your business. And so when it comes to somebody struggling, the last place that they want to have their car parked is outside the mental health office so that everybody in town can whisper or try to decide what they think is going on with so-and-so, I saw their car. That's why Karen says it's important that the person at the other end of the line answering the call gets the local community and how to suggest where to find help. Well, you know what? You can drive 50 miles to another town, and here's where their office is, and here's their phone number. Most people do not want resources in Wyoming in their own town. When you think about the demographics, who do, who do you picture calling in? Oh, wow. Um, there isn't just one face. We have young people that in Wyoming feel... Um, isolated for various reasons. We have a whole a, a demographic of farmers and ranchers um, and in a culture all their own that struggle with suicide as a group. Um, 
I, I see the faces of face of elderly people who think that this is, they don't want to be a burden to their family and that their only way out is to die by suicide. The impact of suicide can be felt throughout Wyoming, across demographics. In one survey, queer young people reported seriously considering suicide at a rate three times higher than straight youth. According to the most recent data from 2020, most deaths by suicide in Wyoming were white men, 25 and older. People like Jason and Casper. Had you ever thought about calling a a suicide crisis hotline? Uh, No. After his first suicidal crisis in his truck in 2013, Jason was institutionalized. He regularly saw a therapist and a psychiatrist after that, and he thought things might be stabilizing. He told his family and close friends what he would need if he was again in crisis. I'd already built my team up so much that I trusted, that knew how to help me and knew what to do to get me to a safer place, both physically, mentally, and all that. The suicidal thoughts didn't go away, though. They came and went like a roller coaster. And in 2017, they intensified. One afternoon, Jason was home alone. He had a plan. So he called his doctors. I was able to reach a receptionist, and then they told me that they didn't have an appointment. or couldn't squeeze me in. The despair took over. He texted his friends and family to say goodbye and began to attempt suicide. Moments later, his phone started to light up with replies. When he closed his eyes and tried to let go, he couldn't get those messages out of his mind. Not until during the attempt that I had a moment of clarity to stop. Uh huh. Is that why you think you survived? That you had a that did something cre- caused you to pause? Oh yeah, that's definitely um, why I'm still here. Do you have the suicide the National Suicide Prevention Hotline phone number in your phone now? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I should, but I don't know. What, what, what have you heard about people's experiences when they have tried to dial a hotline and, and seek help in Wyoming? Yeah, well, prior to the local hotline, um, I heard some people say they're on home for up to 20 minutes. Um, and when you're in a crisis situation, 20 minutes is you know, an eternity, you know? Yeah. Um, but then once they got the local hotlines, um, the people that have that I have heard or talked about talk to them, called in, say it's much better, um, and get right in. There's not near as long as a wait. The two suicide hotlines in Wyoming split the week. The call center in Casper, where Jason lives, answers calls in the evening through the middle of the night. Then the calls are routed to Grable, a small town in the northern part of Wyoming, it's less than two square miles in area, with a population of 1,600. No call goes unanswered. We do not have the, our phone system cannot return a busy signal. Ralph Nieder-Westerman runs that call center, the Wyoming Lifeline. He grew up in Mississippi and spent most of his adult life in San Francisco, but has come to love Wyoming, even its rugged weather. 
as he showed me when I met him at the front door of the call center in Grable. There was a huge gust of wind, and this door had not been completely closed. It sheared the door off, and the door landed right here. <laughs> That's when you can tell someone's new to Wyoming. They don't know that they can't just, like, swing open a door, that yeah, the wind might right. take it. On the day we met, he was wearing bright red Nike Air Force Ones and his long hair and a ponytail. Ralph's been coming to the state since 2015. When I first talked to him on Zoom, he was out of town, taking care of his husband Jeff's parents. I think it's important that as a gay couple that we're out and proud in Wyoming, in a small town like Grable. Mm-hmm. How long have you and Jeff been together? 40 years. Whoa. Wait, how old were you when you met? Two. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up, I talk with Ralph about preparing for the rollout of 988 and whether they're ready. The lack of resources is, is a frustration to everybody who does this work. This month, I'm guest hosting the NPR show, It's Been a Minute. And we're talking about the launch of 988 over on that show, too, this week. I spoke with Hannah Wesolowski to learn more about how this launch is going nationally. Hannah is the chief advocacy officer for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And I asked how the trained crisis counselors who answer 988 calls are different from the people who answer 911. The call is the intervention for 988. Hmm. For about 80 to 98% of calls, they can be de-escalated over the phone. So the immediate crisis can be resolved over the phone. And that can reduce the need for in-person response for many of these crisis situations. And she told me those crisis situations don't all have to be about the risk of suicide. This system is designed to answer calls from anyone experiencing any kind of mental health crisis. You know, when I think about who might use it, um, I can think about parents who are worried about their teenage uh, child who's pulled away and has become isolated, or, you know, a mother who recently gave birth who is really struggling. Um, It could be a, a person who's experiencing some paranoia and doesn't know what is happening and needs help. You know, anyone who's struggling with what's going on in the world and is feeling intense emotional distress. So Hannah and her colleagues in the mental health community are expecting and hoping for a lot more calls. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Hannah over in the It's Been a Minute podcast feed on Friday. She was wonderful to talk to, really knowledgeable about this new policy and also all that still needs to be done to fix our mental health care system. I recommend listening. Let me tell you a good story. It was late on a Sunday afternoon, and my family and I had been away and rolled into the driveway, and everyone was worn out from traveling and getting hangry. But waiting for us was a solution. A hungry root box filled with healthy, grabbable snacks and a few different dinner meals to choose from. We tore into this thing like a pack of wild animals and ate all the snacks— 
but they were healthy. Whole ingredients, fresh produce. And then we were set for dinner a few hours later, which only took about 15 minutes to prep and cook and get on the table. I was so grateful to my past self for doing my current self this solid by ordering this box. And it was easy. I took a short quiz to tell Hungry Root what kinds of meat my family eats, the sorts of flavors we like, any dietary restrictions we have, or just things we're trying to avoid, and when I wanted the box to be delivered. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Death, Sex, and Money listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com DSM to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com DSM. And don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand, like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com, from the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case, and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this uh, for me is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Decoder Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. 
To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit Slate.com slash DSM Plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. When I met Ralph Nieder Westerman in Grable, Wyoming, he was just back from Casper Pride. He took a bunch of postcards advertising the lifeline. This card says, it takes courage to open up and heal. I call this one hunky cowboy. And this one is just farmer. Yeah. (laughs) For most of his working life, Ralph worked for an airline. His husband runs a marketing firm, which is how they got into the call center business to begin with. Ralph gave me a tour of the center, which was quiet, now that everyone at the Lifeline is mostly working remotely. Here's the break room. The break room. I'm going to check the fridge. Is there anything in here? Oh, it's totally, all it has is ketchup and mayo and mustard. We emptied it out because we have turned it off. (laughs) It's an empty office. It's empty, but they've been busy. The Lifeline only just expanded their hours to cover seven days a week in March, in anticipation of the launch of 988. Have you felt a sense of an uptick? I'll show you. I'll show you the graph. Why is it so small? Because I have a much bigger screen at home. So here we are. Um, So this shows you what's been going on. We went in March is when we went uh, to seven days a week, uh, 12 hours a day. So the spike... January and February, we had 50, 55 calls, 82 calls in March. A dip in April, we had 97 calls in the month of May. Through yesterday, we've had 47. These are the Then in June, they got the most calls ever, more than double their monthly numbers from the winter. Uh, 988 will go into effect on July 16th, come hell or high water. It doesn't matter if you're ready or if you're not. I was reading an article, excuse me, it was a report from the RAND Corporation that said no state is ready. Can it talk me through when you're answering calls? Mm-hmm. What, what is the experience of the caller and then when do they connect with you and what do you see? If a call comes in, there'll be a little flag here. I will click, you know, pick up the phone and then I will hear, press one to accept this lifeline call. We press one, and then we're connected. At that moment, this contact form will pop up on their second screen. I see. What happens is as the person is calling, talking to the caller, you know, you start making some, some assumptions, and you start filling out why, why did you call. Um, is there a question here about access to firearms on this survey when a caller calls in? It doesn't ask specifically, but do you have any methods? Uh, this is where we would put in a note saying has has access to a gun. It's Wyoming. Everybody has access to mm-hmm. a gun. And then here we have the suicide risk assessment section. And then There's this little dial on the side of the screen that guides what the Lifeline moves. staff do next. When it gets to the red, then we're really in, we have somebody who is at, at immediate risk. And then all hands on deck, 
if we have enough information, we will then call what we'll call emergency services uh-huh. uh, and and get somebody there right away. The last thing that we want to do is call 911. Um, I have been on a call with Casper Police, and this was a third-party caller uh, who was worried about his friend, and I was on the line the entire time. And I would just say that the way this police officer in Casper handled the situation was was amazing. I wish everybody would. Mm-hmm. I've also had some other in smaller towns where the response from 911 has been, um, oh, we know exactly who it is. She does this all the time. I see. Do you have a memory of sitting right here looking at these two screens and having a phone call with somebody that um, that really sticks out to you where you were really glad that you here and Grable were the one answering the phone? There was a, I spoke to a woman who said, many times they begin, I'm not suicidal, but, and I listened and she said, you're not going to understand what it's like. I have all of these things going on in my life and you don't know what it's like to live in a small town. And I said, I live in Grable. You could hear the sigh. You could hear the sense of relief. You know exactly what this is like. I live in Cody. And I was tempted to say, and that's the big city I go to to go shopping. Calls get personal at the Wyoming Lifeline. For those who dial in and for the people picking up the phone. Adam Smith does that full-time for the Lifeline. He grew up in town. I actually left uh, Grable the day after I graduated. Um, I really didn't like it here. But he moved back to take care of his dad, who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and struggled with his mental health. Then I'd get a call from my mom, like, okay, you gotta come home. You know, he's not doing well. And I would hop on a plane immediately and come home. Hmm. But, um, yeah, and that's that's kind of what brought me back about four years ago, too. Mm-hmm. And I just decided to stay. And and was it your sense and your father's sense um, that he got adequate care? There was good care for him as somebody who was struggling. With- Actually, no, he didn't. Um, he had to go to three different, uh, for better words, mental hospitals before he got the treatment he needed. And the treatment he got was in Denver, Colorado. I see. He had to that leave the state. Him. Yes, he did. Uh huh. So you're like in your. Uh, sort of late 30s, coming mm-hmm. up on your late 30s when you move home. Um, yeah. What did you think you were going to do for work when you came home? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I had no idea because there's ranching jobs, there's there's the railroad, uh, and then there's like bartending jobs. I guess I might have landed one of those or cooking in a restaurant, something like that. And then um, I found a IT position, and then one day Ralph came in, and I heard him kind of, I was getting a cup of coffee, I think, or something, and they were talking about the lifeline, and I was like, what's this all about? And 
I was like, is there any openings? And Ralph was like, actually, we're looking for another person. On a typical, we're talking in February, on a typical day, how many calls would you get where you, would you say, where you where you are concerned that, that the person who's calling in might harm themselves? Um, it varies. It really does vary. Uh, there can be sometimes three calls a day. Sometimes there can be none. Um, I think probably one of the worst ones I had where I had to stay with the one person on the phone because uh, we're waiting for dispatch to get there to help her. Mm. And uh, yeah, some of them are hard calls for sure. Very hard calls. Because you feel at times like, I don't know, I do anyways, like I betrayed the person's trust when that knock on the door comes and it's the police. And, uh, you know, they're so either deep in a psychosis or they're, you know, really intent on ending their life that they feel betrayed. But I think that them calling the lifeline is that a part of them still wants to live. Mm-hmm. So I try not to take that to heart too much, but it's kind of hard sometimes. Yeah. Have you ever struggled with mental illness yourself? Uh, yeah, I have. Um, I am bipolar. Um, and I told Ralph that when he <laughs> hired me, actually. And we would we would kind of joke about it when I would work on uh, some days. I'd come into the office and be like, uh, well, it's kind of one of those manic days, Ralph. He <laughs> mm-hmm. just be like, oh, <laughs> okay. And, you know, because I would have super high energy and making coffee and running around the, you know, doing things for people. What is it like for you when you have um, a difficult, emotionally draining phone call and then your colleagues are not nearby? You're, you're handling it well, by yourself. For me, it's music, really, is what helps me the most. Um, Elliot Smith, I don't know, uh, Grateful Dead. Something, Adam, about listening to Elliot Smith after an emotionally taxing <laughs> <text laughs> <phone> call. <laughs> I find Elliot Smith's music actually really kind of, I don't find it depressing at all. Some of it can be, but, you know, some of it can be really upbeat, too, I find. And beautiful. Just beautiful. Oh, yeah. Amazingly beautiful music. If you call the Wyoming Lifeline and there aren't any local operators available, you're rolled over to a national call center. But Adam just got a little extra help when the Wyoming Lifeline hired one more person to answer calls locally, thanks to a small federal grant. And earlier this year, the legislature directed more than $2 million in COVID relief money to further increase suicide lifeline capacity in the state. Usually within minutes, I could tell when I'm starting to have negative thoughts. Sometimes I've noticed it the moment it happens, so I've been able to shut it down. Um, are, does your, do your bosses know? Are you open about, about your mental health diagnosis at work among coworkers? Uh, yeah, actually, where I work now, um, for not much longer, because right, right now I'm, I'm driving a semi, and it's not you know, the best career, especially that for a young family. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to get out of there. Um, I have a degree in geology, so that's been my ultimate goal. 
that's actually where I'm going to go. Fortunately, fortunately, I can use my degree here in about two weeks. Just put in my notice. He told me he'll be working as a production geologist at a uranium mine. Is that nearby, near near your home? Uh, kinda. It's a two-hour drive, so further away than I would have want, but it's in the industry that I want, so I'll definitely take and give. That's awesome. Um, will you come and go each day, do you think? Uh, yeah, there's a few that work out there from Casper already, and they all carpool every morning in a company vehicle. Oh, that's nice. So you'll have some buddies on the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just have a few more questions for you, Jason. Um, one is, uh, do you have any firearms in your house? Uh, yeah, I'm actually a hunter. Um, my wife is too, which, you know, that sounds weird that the person that's open and still has suicidal thoughts has firearms in the house. But yeah, we do. To me, that's how you go about having them in your house. Have so, you, like, do you have a safety plan as far as the firearms in your house for when you don't feel healthy? Uh, yeah, they're in a safe that's locked up that I don't have the code to, the key to. So, oh, really? So that's, that's about as safe as you can get. <laughs> and and how um, did you decide that you didn't get to know the code? Uh, actually, when I first started all this, we didn't have a safe. And so it was based off of my wife trusted me to let her know that I wasn't safe to have firearms in the house. And that's not a safe plan at all. It's not a good plan. Have it. It's not, but it worked. But at the entire time, I was like, we need to get a safe and told my wife, you're the only one that's going to use the code. No code. You said that. Yeah. It was, it was all my idea. So I don't want to be able to have the code and, and be able to get to the firearms. Now, like, if she's at work and I'm at the office, I'm go shoot guns with my buddies, that she she will let me have the code. But as soon as she gets home, she changes it. I see. So so then there's, I don't know the code for more than a few hours. Mm-hmm. And do you feel comfortable, like, will you go out hunting by yourself? Now I do, yeah. But at first, after uh, my first time being institutionalized in 2013 uh, I was terrified to be alone anywhere in the house driving hunting that was because I didn't know what I would do I couldn't trust myself but now I I'm comfortable with it I've, I've done it a few times since then even after my attempt it's, it's almost being out there hiking around looking for wildlife, whatever it is, is it almost seems impossible at times to be suicidal for me. It's kinda of like it doesn't even doesn't even come up. That's Jason Whitmire in Casper, Wyoming. Again, if you are struggling with your mental health, please reach out. 
you can call 988. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Lily Clark, along with Katie Bishop, Julia Furlan, and Caitlin Pierce. The rest of our team is Zoe Azoulay, Afi Yellow Duke, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Thanks to Carol Bell and Savannah Collins for their help on this episode. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at AnnaSalePix. That's P-I-C-S. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Jerry Lim in Whitestone, New York, for being a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Jerry and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 